as we've been walking through the Psalms, and, and um, I've kind of taken it as a, as a prayer point this summer to, to continue to pray through the Psalms, it's so fascinating just how sort of raw um, and, and unfiltered these Psalms can be. And, and, it's, and it's such an odd collection at times because you, you just have a roller coaster. You have like a Psalm where everybody's being like, God's so amazing, he's victorious, it's so cool how he's won all of these battles for us, and then why are you downcast on my soul? And it's just such a, a roller coaster of emotions to, to kind of read through, to, to, to put together one after the other. And it's raw and unfiltered at times. It's almost like people's prayer journals put into a, a permanent book for us. And today, we, we will um, wrestle with a psalm that's probably the, the darkest moment of David's life. Probably like the lowest point for David in his kingship, in his kingdom. Like straight out of his prayer journal for us to read. And I don't know how many of us would want our darkest moment prayer time to be put into a Bible for 3,000 years now for people to read and to pray over. But this is what happens for David. And it's a songbook. And you got to imagine, this is a very personal prayer. And you got to imagine that, that the priests and everybody else would, would pick up these, these poems and make them into songs and they would sing them in their corporate gatherings and, and things like that. So at some point, maybe old David's sitting there in the service and they're suddenly like, today we're going to sing about David's darkest point in his ministry. Let's all stand and sing. And David's like, oh, not again. And so you have these sort of moments. But there's a reason some of these poems, some of these songs are in here. There's a reason that we, we need to process some of what is being expressed. And, and today, with, with sort of this really pointed times, it might even um, bring up times, and, and uh, I've, I've done this long enough that there's, there's times where I'll preach a, a sermon and I didn't have anybody specific in mind per se. And then someone will come up after the sermon being like, man, that, that one was like right where I was at that day. Like, it feels like you knew exactly what was going on in, in my heart and my mind. And so um, those moments happen. Uh, I actually have a, a, a pastor friend who, who tells a story when he was a kid, actually. He's like, he was a little bit wild and he felt like the youth pastor was always like pointed the sermon at him and the stuff he was dealing with and stuff that he was, him and his girlfriend were doing, all this kind of stuff. And, and then when he was in his 30s, he found out that his mom actually did find his journal <laughs> and shared with the youth pastor some of the struggles. And so at some point, the youth pastor was specifically talking to his own specific struggles. So... Who knows, maybe one of your spouses or one of your friends shared <laughs> your specific struggles with me. But as we, as we learn from the Psalms, I mean, as I said, each one could be different. And there's emotions, and sometimes they're unfiltered, sometimes they're super personal, but there's still lessons to be learned. Just because this one is very um, specific in terms of the nature of what David's talking about, that doesn't mean that we can't extract really important principles from it. And maybe we're in the midst of a season where um, there's stuff going on in, in your life. Stuff that, um, stuff where there's sin, stuff where you know you've, you've messed up, you've just blown it. 
And, and in a perfect world, you wouldn't have made those choices. In a perfect world, we certainly would have um, tried to avoid those, but here we are. Maybe the things you wanted to do, you didn't do, and the things you didn't want to do are the things you do. And, and this psalm should give us a, a moment to, to reflect. But I, I need to give a background, because the psalmist in Psalm 51 actually gives us a background as well. The opening line, the opening sort of title, um, which we don't have a slide for, because I don't know why our slides don't include these, because they are actually in the original manuscripts. But the, the titles of the psalms are not necessarily, they're made up by the English translators. But then when there's like a, a Psalm of David, these capital letters, those are actually in the manuscripts. And Psalm 51 says to the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So we have a context that the psalmist wants to know about, whether it's David or not. That, that is the background we're supposed to be thinking. And that's 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Now the first chapter is David and Bathsheba in chapter 11. Next chapter is David and Nathan. Um, and chapter headings also are not in the original text. I would argue that this is like one continuous story to be told. And the problem is most of us are probably more acquainted with the David and Bathsheba story, right? I mean, Leonard Cohen sings about it, everything. Like, we're more familiar with that than we are Nathan's part of the story as well. And so, just to recap, David, uh, there's battles that are being fought uh, amongst the edges of the kingdom. Uh, David is home at, the, at his sort of throne, at his, um, at his home, uh, in the midst of the kingdom at this moment in time. Now, David goes out to the rooftop in the evening. Uh, we don't know uh, exactly why. Maybe it's just having a nice sip of coffee and looking at the stars. But he heads out to the rooftop. And from the rooftop, he spots Bathsheba. And the actual language of the story would actually imply that she was not simply taking a bath like she was uh, bathing, but she was going through some ritual cleansing because there's some hints in, in the text that uh, she was made clean in that moment, likely a monthly cleansing that she would be required to do by law. And let me be, this is just a side note, but let me be as clear as I can be. The Bible never once implies that Bathsheba did anything wrong in the story. Never once. When, when Nathan will eventually confront, when there's some confrontation about the whole incident and everything, David is the only one culpable in the story. Bathsheba never is. So any sort of stories that Bathsheba was like trying to entice David and stuff like that, it just doesn't line up with scripture. So I just want to be very, very clear that Bathsheba is really the victim of the story and not, um, not the one culpable. Because we find out David sees her, maybe taking some sort of ritual bath, and he decides, uh, and the language is, to take her. And, and it even, he's even confronted by some of the soldiers being like, um, you know who this woman is, right? Like, He's one of your mighty warriors, like Uriah, like one of the soldiers that has served you so well. It's his wife, like, hint, hint, David, this is not, are you sure you want to do this? And then David says, well, I'm the king, I get what I want. And he goes and has the soldiers bring Mariah, uh, uh, Bathsheba to him. Uh, the word rape is definitely a more modern term, but it's probably something similar like that in the story. This is a man who has power. He's using his power uh, to coerce women. It's not like this doesn't happen today. Uh, Hollywood has plenty of stories of this. Churches have stories of this. This is a power play by men in power once again. He sends Bathsheba away. And at some point, David's probably like, 
well, I, I, I got what I wanted and we're, we're done. But then Bathsheba shows back up and she's pregnant. And so David does what most will do and seeks to cover up the story, seeks to, to bury it as best he can. So he invites Uriah, Uriah comes home from war, uh, Bathsheba's husband, and he's like whining and dining Uriah, giving him all sorts of accolades, giving him probably plenty of alcohol. And he's like, go home to your wife and hint, hint, nudge, nudge, have a good time with her. Like to, to hopefully get her pregnant by Uriah. But Uriah, being a, a faithful soldier and faithful to his soldiers, decides, no, I'm going to stay at the steps. Why, why do I get to go home when most of my soldiers still aren't home? And, and decides not to go home and to stay on the steps as sort of faithfully loyal to his soldiers. So David concocts another plan because this is clearly not working. And he's like, Uriah, I need to send you back out. Um, I'm going to give you a, a note to give to the general on the field for you. And he sends Uriah out. And Uriah arrives to the general, hands him the note. The general opens the note. And in it, it simply says, have Uriah go into like the fiercest of battles and pull, when, when the fighting is at its worst, pull the rest of the soldiers away and see, see what happens. And that's what happens. And Uriah certainly dies being one against many in the fiercest moment of battle. And so Uriah gets killed. And David probably is thinking, okay, I took care, I took care of the problem. I'm swept under the rug. It's going to be okay. No one has to know. But as is a theme in the Bible, all things that are done will eventually come to light. Um, our sin, our brokenness, things done in the darkness do come to light at some point. And that's what's going to happen for David. And David hasn't done the most wonderful job at hiding his moment either. We get folks like Nathan the prophet in the very next chapter who show up and he confronts David. He's like, David, I need to tell you a story of something going on in your kingdom. David's like, okay, bring it. And he tells a story and there's a rich man who has want for nothing. He has all the cattle he wants, all the money he wants, all the sheep, all the land. He has everything he wants. He's wealthy beyond measure. The next door to him is a man who um, is poor, basically, working class individual, supports his family, modest house, but really has like one sheep to his name. But this sheep is like a prized possession to the man. Like the sheep eats at the table and sleeps in the bed and and the rich man, though, has some guests coming for, for a party or, or to visit. And he has, um, he goes and gets the sheep from the poor man, slaughters the sheep, has it for a feast and um, a celebration, and serves it to his guest. And the Bible says that David's like livid in this moment, just angry, like that is unjust. How can that be happening in my kingdom? That guy should be put to death for what he has done. We should take everything he owns and gives it to the poor man in this moment. And Nathan looks at David and it's like, you don't understand, David. You are the rich man. And David, once again, depending on how you read the tone, may actually still have a half-hearted like, confession it's like, oh, I've, I've sinned against the Lord. 
because Nathan follows up, and it almost feels like, yeah, you think, you think, David? And then goes on to rebuke and offer a whole lot of instruction on the back end as if that moment wasn't enough. And he reminds David, look, David, you did screw up royally, literally royally, he is king. And you are going to find forgiveness, but there's also going to be a lot of consequences to what just happened. And so it's David's moment to, to make a decision of what he's going to do. There's going to be long-term consequences, short-term consequences that play out immediately. And so you're left with, what is David going to do? What's going to become of King David? Because we already saw one king kind of fail in the storyline in Saul's. So what's going to happen to David? What's he going to do in this season of just dark consequences, in this moment of shame and pain and brokenness and weakness, he's been outed for something that is terrible. This is where Psalm 51 comes in. So let me read it for us. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from all sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the, the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guilty, uh, guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Do good to Zion and in your good pleasure. And I think he's personifying the building up of the city to the building up of himself. Do good in Zion and in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So in this moment of just like profound shame and brokenness and sin, this is what it seems like David has penned for us. In the midst of wishing that nobody knew about what had happened, he pens these words, words that a thousand years later we are still reading and reflecting and singing songs about invoking emotion, inspiring us in some ways. And you feel David. You feel David's angst of, I'm broken. It's you and you alone. God, you, you need to cleanse me. I, sh I, I messed up significantly. God, 
can you forgive me? Will you forgive me? And we're not going to go line by line, I think, this time. There's, there's a lot to unpack, but there's also a lot of repetition. But uh, I want us to look at, I think, three things that um, become kind of applications in this moment. Three things about how we should handle ourselves related to this text. And hear me, I don't think David gets everything right. Like, once again, we're reading Psalms, we're reading prayers. When he says against you and you alone have I sinned, yes and no. Like, he sinned against God, but he has sinned against other people. He clearly sinned against Uriah, sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against his constituents. Like, He's also done those, like, I don't think David says everything he could or should say in this, but these are his prayers. This is what he's expressing in angst. And perhaps you're here today and you're not experiencing shame on the same level that David might be. But we've all done things that we hope no one finds out about. We all think certain things that we hope no one ever would know that we think. We all have made choices that we hope no one really knows, hiding things. And maybe we have prayers that no one really ever finds out about them. So what can we learn? I think the first is that confession and repentance brings the freedom that we actually long for, not covering up. (laughs) That in the deepest part of our souls, in, in what we were truly created to be and to do from Genesis 1 and 2, before sin enters in, it's, it's, it's freedom. Our souls long for, for the ability to just be true and honest and, and be totally open before God and before our fellow men and women. Like, here's who I really am. And for whatever reason, we're wired um, uh, to do that, yet our, we have these two responses that we often function with when we actually sin. And that's to cover up, in some ways probably to bargain I mean, even from the beginning in Genesis 3, this is what we see right away. Adam and Eve do the thing that they were told not to do, and what's their response? They they try to cover up right away, right? They realize they're naked, there's some shame, and the first thing they do is try to figure out how to cover up. Try to cover up and try to hide in the midst of that, literally and figuratively. This is often where we go when we've screwed up when we've sinned, when we've made these mistakes. I'm not going to tell anyone. I'm just going to work to make it go away, sweep it under the rug, hide. And we have stories after stories. Both in American politics and the stories we tell on TV shows and movies where the person screws up and then tries to cover it up and then it only gets worse when that happens, right? Like that is Breaking Bad 101, right? I made one big mistake and now I'm a drug lord. Right? That's the storyline. It's like every time that there's a method to, to cover up the mistake, it only gets worse. It only eats away at the main character. It only eats away at us. And David was trying to do the same. Trying to do the same thing of covering up his own mistakes, his worst moments. And then I think there's some at times bargaining. I think David even addresses this in the Psalms. In this psalm, as he comes along and says, God, I can bring you burnt offerings. God, I, I, I could bring you sacrifices, but I know that's not what you want. And we, we sometimes do the same thing in this sort of this bargaining thing. God, uh, I will come to church every day if you'll work this situation out. 
if you'll help me hide it. God, I will give more. I will be more generous if you help make this go away. And David's like, if I could bring you sacrifices to make this simpler, I would. But that's not what you actually want, God. And David seems to land on the fact that deep down, what God really wants from us, God desires of us, what our souls long for, is dishonesty. Verse 6 um, And ESV says, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Or as um, the the New Living uh, Translation says, um, you desire honesty from the heart. Yes, utter sincerity and truthfulness. God, you desire me to just be true and honest with you. And built into every part of our being, every part of our soul, every cell in our body is this initial pull to actually be honest before God. Sin always messes with that, but that is what we are created to do. And in these moments of true confession, true repentance, our soul finds freedom there. But while forgiveness is freely given, this is point two, it does not remove the consequences. I think there's a hope at times in our confession that it becomes this get out of jail kind of free moment. And, and I've walked with people through some big mistakes and they've confessed, they've, they've shared it with me, they've been honest about it. And then afterward, I'm like, you need to go talk to the person that you've wronged and, and you gotta confess to them and you gotta work this out. And it's like, no, I don't wanna do that part. It's like, well, you need, like, this, this is the consequence. This is, the sin is still wrecking havoc on their life and and there's still the situation. There needs to be some sort of reconciliation, some sort of pursuit. We have to face the consequences that sometimes our sins have. David's certainly confessing here, but I love that we get the background of the story. And and Nathan says to David, look, you're going to receive forgiveness, but there's going to be all these things that are gonna happen. There's going to be these consequences for this mistake. It's the beauty of the prophets of the Old Testament. Sometimes we think of them as sort of like fortune tellers who are telling, but, but uh, half the time it sort of just feels like they're like pastors who are sitting there going, um, if you keep along this path, there will be consequences for it. it it's not always hard to read, to, to, to be like, if you do this, there's a consequence this way. There's always hope. There's always forgiveness, but there's consequences. And the beauty still is that there is always forgiveness that is freely given. Like, to a thousand generations, that's that's the nature of God's kindness. Three or four, there's some consequences, but to a thousand, there's some forgiveness. It's the very reason Jesus came for this free forgiveness, to reconcile us back to God and to forgive our sin. And this is what David is experiencing. This is what makes David and Saul, I think, a bit different. You have Saul, who was the previous king, who had all the trappings of a wonderful king, right? He had the look, he was a military leader in some ways, he had a certain sense of actually humility when they wanted to make him the king, he's like hiding in some luggage. Like, he, he, he has some trappings to be this potential wonderful king. Like, he, he fit the mold in some ways. But then he messed up, as every king will do. David and Solomon as well. But what happens when Saul messes up? 
is Saul sort of like freaking out, saying, don't take the kingdom away from me. Don't take the people's approval away from me. Don't take the power away from me. That's where Saul goes. He's, he's worried about losing his position and his power. But when David screws up, he sits there and goes, you know what? Against you and you alone, God. Like, I've, I've messed up royally. He owns it. He owns his mistakes. He owns his messes. I've sinned. I've polluted my soul. I've caused wreckage. God, I need you to cleanse me. All I ask is for your mercy. And God is a free giver of grace. And the question, I mean, even for us, how many of you have committed adultery and then had the spouse of that person killed? I think most of us hopefully haven't raised our hands. I mean, if you have, great. David's in your camp. But it's pretty unlikely. But what's our forgiveness? For murder and adultery? Yes. You aren't going to out-sin God's ability to forgive. Like none of us. Like if adultery is in your storyline, if theft and stealing, if just destroying someone's life through your words, what, whatever it may be, you're not going to out-sin God's ability to forgive. I love Isaiah 59. It's truly the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. God doesn't have like T-Rex arms. He has the ability to reach out and save whoever. But it's not a get out of jail free card in terms of consequences. And we cover up and we bargain because of those consequences. But the story of David, the story of scripture time and time again is that if we don't face those consequences, if we give them time to fester, it will cause more and more problems. Truth, honesty, confession, that is what brings some freedom. And on the back end, the restoration, this, this bringing back to God is about, I think at times it's accountability for ourselves and to the assistance of others, of helping others. In that moment where we are honest and confess, moments we repent and we do say, God, I resolve to not do those things again. God, I messed up. There's a point to our restoration in that moment. Not just reconciliation to God, not just that forgiveness moment, but, but to bring about this ongoing sense of accountability and help for others. He, David will say, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold with, uh, hold me with a willing spirit. So restore me, God. Bring me back to where I was. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And this, again, once again, is the beauty of having the story of David as a backdrop to the psalm. Because after Nathan came to him, Nathan tells him this story that ends up being about David. David started processing and facing his consequences. He faced some immediately. And some are people around him knowing uh, about all this and start doubting his kingship, which if you're a king, you don't want a bunch of subjects who are starting to doubt your kingship, your authority. But what this produced around him are a whole lot of people who seem to be willing to speak into David a little more honestly knowing that Nathan did so and wasn't beheaded or anything in the process, it, there seem to be others throughout David's life now that, that are able to, at times, have these harsher conversations or to be able to question, David, we saw you do this. Why, why did you do that? And if he didn't need accountability, we wouldn't have gotten ourselves in this trouble to begin with. David, if David didn't need this, 
He wouldn't have had to cover up. He wouldn't have had to do these things, but this is what is needed. But they don't have this accountability around it. And David recognizes his rebellious heart in this moment. And then one of the best ways to, to, to utilize that is to help others and that it's actually good for him as well. One of the best ways to keep accountable is to help others from making those same mistakes. And we see other people walking down a path that you have walked down as well. You're, you're already, you have been there and you're able to say, hey, you should probably know, I've been there before. And I see how this will play out. Like, this is the beauty and effectiveness of a group like AA. It's one of the most effective ways that people deal with um, alcohol addictions. And it's powerful. It's like a shared struggling community together to all sit down and some who are farther along walking in this process who are more weeks, months, years removed from the last drink they had with people who are new, who are making their early mistakes and struggling and are helping to coach the people who are new and they're reminded of their struggles of of the early days and it, it, it helps keep them from stepping back into those things ability to part wisdom for those who are new to the struggle. I think David's confessing that right here, saying, look, <laughs> when you restore me, I am able to help others from walking through the same things. And hear me, that is such a picture of what the church should be. Yet we often miss out on one of the most profound pieces that helps us change. Yes, the Holy Spirit, but also the community. Like we all come in as jacked up, messy people with sin in our lives, a lot of it. And I hope you realize like part of being like a part of the AA meeting where we should walk in and say, hello, my name is Chris Case and I'm, I've sinned a lot this week. And we all gather and that is our confession. Like the cross is like this giant reminder every week, like as we have gathered, we are the people who have been outed. <laughs> like, you can not be here Sunday and just go on with life and sin and just not do anything about it. Or you can gather and profess that Jesus is Lord and I need him to deal with the fact that I have sin in my life. And there's a freedom and grace that comes in with coming into the community with that disposition. Going to life group with that disposition. Being like, I'm probably the most sinful person in this room, but everybody else is really sinful too. So let's talk about that. Let's open up. And all the ways we don't walk into the way that God has designed us to walk, let's share, let's confess, because we all desire to, to deal with sin. Just as much as everyone in AA all desires to deal with alcoholism. And what does it look like to be a community like that? And I know sometimes we're on the backside of these things. We've found forgiveness, we've confessed and with someone we've hurt, we never want to talk about it again. But the reality is the scripture encourages us, I think, to take that as a way to help others around us. And one of the most incredible things about the story is also how it unfolds for David's family. There are tons of consequences. Hear me, I mean, his family is jacked. Part of his family rebels against him. One of his sons tries to, to have an insurrection. People doubt David time and time again. There's infighting in the kingdom. A lot of it could be traced back to this moment. But at the end of the day, David's son Solomon will take the throne. And there's the time of peace that continues for Israel. And there's this fascinating line on the book of Proverbs. 
And it's in this section that's actually connected to Solomon. Um, so all of Proverbs isn't Solomon, but there are sections that are like, here are some of the words of Solomon. He's considered the wisest to ever have lived. And having seen his dad walk through the pain of his choices, having seen his dad confess and repent and have consequences for all of these things, he says this in Proverbs 28. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And that's the story. That's David's story. And when we mess up, when we sin, yes, it's bad. I'm not trying to lighten that at all. But when we conceal it, it seems to be when our lives start really breaking down. When we confess, when we turn away, we receive mercy, and that mercy is promised all the time. And Solomon acknowledges here that transgressions, if we conceal it, when we, that's when we really screw things up. He's like, you're going to have transgressions, but the problem is when we conceal it. It's in confession that we find the freedom that I think God actually has for us. So I was trying to think of what we should do on the back end. So um, we're going to pass around some microphones. And I'm going to have you share your worst sins today. Just kidding. We're not going to do that. Don't worry. That would be, that would be awful. Um, yeah. Talk about what not to do in church. Um, no, but it is fitting that we take time to confess kind of dwell on these things and then on the back end celebrate the beautiful grace that communion is for us. The beautiful thing that communion invites us into. Like we have the promises of mercy and communion invites us into that. And so um, I'm going to lead us uh, through a few prayers. Um, One is a prayer for us. I will say it over us. And then a couple lines of reflection to just pause and be quiet. And then we'll close with a bit of a call and response. But this is a moment. This is corporate AA meeting, just sin anonymous, but we shouldn't be anonymous either. But for us to be like, this, if I confess Jesus, this is, this is part of it. <laughs> Jesus is Lord, what he did was to out me as a sinner. Like I'm coming in going, I'm a sinful person. That's partly why I'm here. And for us to just be before the Lord and to repeat words like David and say, yes, it's, it's, it's against you, God, that I sinned. I just want to bring these things to light and not hide them in darkness. John, in one of his letters, invites the followers of Jesus, like, look, like, you should be in the light. Like, the, in, in light, there's, it drives out darkness. It, it reveals things. It's like turning on the light and having a room full of roaches. The roaches are sin, and what happens is the light causes them to scatter, to, to run. And that's the invitation, is to bring things that are dark, or sin, or brokenness, into light. And let the light do its work. So holy and merciful Father, we confess to you and to one another that we have sinned against you 
by what we've done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not fully loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not always had in us the mind of Christ. You alone, God, know how we grieve you by wasting your gifts, wandering from your ways. Forgive us, God. Wash us and renew us. Renew in us the grace and strength of your Holy Spirit. So God, as we reflect, as we take a silent moment, we reflect on the times when we took too long to obey you. (laughs) Help us with your power and strength next time. God, we reflect on the instances where we failed to see you leading us. Help us to be more attentive next time. Let's reflect. of justice. We consider the moments when we were too afraid to take action, to be a part of your justice work in this world. Mobilize us next time. May we reflect on it.
now to pray a call and response. Oh God of grace, you've taken my sin and put it on Jesus' head. You've taken his righteousness and put it on mine. You've made me holy and blameless in your sight. Therefore, you delight in me. But in my Christian walk, on my best days, I still sin. I am greedy. I am selfish. I am lustful. I am slothful. I love my sinful delights more than I love you or love my neighbor. I sin like this more frequently than I care to admit, but I tell you, Heavenly Father, because Jesus has died for me and because you can empower me to walk in obedience, grant that I never lose sight of the ugliness of sin, the glory of Christ, the beauty of holiness, or the wonder of grace. Help me to seek you every morning with heart, soul, mind, and strength.